Good morning, everybody. Happy Sabbath. It's so good to be with you. And normally this Sabbath, we have our students here. And I'm so thankful that Anwar and Fabian were able to join Pastor Julie in sharing some of their ministry that they're doing because they weren't able to go out canvassing this, this summer. So I'm very grateful and very proud of what they've been doing. And in addition to that, I also want to thank Pastor Jeff because every year, Pastor Jeff, you've made this opportunity available for us, and we really do appreciate it. So today, I'm going to continue the tradition that Gavin and, and Candy did in the last couple of weeks, telling you some stories. And I want to tell you some flying stories from my flying experience. I've entitled this sermon, this message, On Course, On Glide Slope, Cleared to Land. And the text I want to use is Revelation eleven nineteen. It says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So I believe that when our pioneers saw this temple and they looked up into the ark, into the, the sanctuary of, of, of heaven, that they realized that they were on course, like a ship being guided by, on, on the ocean, by being guided by the stars at night. And so I want to talk about that, but in the context of flying. So as we begin, let us pray. Dear God, we just want to thank you that we can open your word just now, and we pray for your blessing upon us, and we pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us as we explore this message of Revelation eleven nineteen. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me just start with some stories. Let me, the first one, I, I want to share some of the planes I used to fly. So let's, I'll start with this first plane. It's a supersonic jet trainer that I flew in the Air Force. And it's the one that the, air, the astronauts actually kind of joyride around in when, in their spare time. The first time I ever went up in this plane, with an instructor, I was breathing so hard I couldn't control my breathing. I was going like this <sighs> through the whole thing. And finally, we got up to altitude, and the instructor, he kind of had enough of it. And he said, McCoy, I want you to read the checklist. And by the way, I sure wish you would relax and save some of the oxygen for me. So that was my first experience in that plane. Now, this next plane is a bigger plane. It's four engines. This one, I flew in Southeast Asia, and I eventually became an aircraft commander on it. We flew this in the Saigon evacuation in 1975. And it's kind of interesting because <clears throat> this plane is designed for 85 passengers. But during that evacuation, we were putting on it two, three, even 400 people. It was kind of amazing. This was the plane that I was flying when the Lord got a hold of my life at the at evangelistic meetings at the Sharon Avenue Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and everything changed. I surrendered my heart to Christ. I was baptized, and now I'm, I was keeping the Sabbath for the first time in my life. And I remember I went to my commander to tell him that my desire to keep the Sabbath. He, had, he let me have off for a few months, but finally he he called me in. He said, Les, you, you got to either be here or resign. He said, I went to a convention. There was a hundred chaplains there. 
you can't tell me a hundred chaplains are wrong. And so with tears in my eyes, I resigned. I mean, it was a big deal to me. I, I was flying all over the world. And, but God had something better for me, much better. Now, there is one side story I think you'll enjoy. I met some pilots one day, and one of them happened to fly the same airplane, this big airplane, over in Southeast Asia the same time I was there. And <clears throat> we never met. He couldn't understand why I would give up flying for my faith and to keep the Sabbath and all of this. But he had just retired from the Air National Guard on a full pension. He was a captain for United Airlines on the biggest airplane in the world, the 747. And, and when I heard that, it just kind of took my breath away. Wow, if I'd gone in that direction, maybe I could have had that. So when I got home, I told Barbara that story. She said to me, oh, sweetheart, are you having a little flashback? She said, look at it this way. Just suppose you had gone that direction in your life. First of all, you never would have met me. And secondly, nobody ever sees the pilot anyway. <laughs> hey, so much for our husband, us husbands telling our woes to our wives. Anyway, now this next plane, this was uh, kind of tough to fly. You can see it has a tailwheel on it. And it was a little harder than even some of the jets for me to get the hang of, but I finally got pretty good at it. We used to haul everything in this plane, auto parts, dolphins. Yeah, my boss was big with SeaWorld. And chickens, those, those little baby chicks, you know, cheap, 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 cheap. I one time had 2,000 passengers on board. <laughs> and my, my boss one time, he sent me to New York with a load of those chickens in the middle of winter. And he told me, he said, don't run the heater because it'll kill the chickens. Now, I don't know if that was true, but I believed him. And so I'm flying up to New York and I'm just freezing to death, just shaking. And I got to where I just couldn't take it anymore and I turned on the heater. But then I got to thinking about those chickens. So I turned off the heater and I can still remember looking over my shoulder <laughs> to see if I'd fried the chickens. But hey, they were okay. One day... My boss called me up and he fired me because I wouldn't fly on Sabbath. And I said, Lord, what, what am I going to do? The big plane's gone and now this and the airline opportunity, what am I going to do to make a living? But two weeks later, my boss called me up and he hired me back. He said, look, we were going to start this new airlines and we wanted you to be one of the pilots, but you won't fly on your Sabbath on Saturday and we just can't have that. But I'll tell you what I'll do. If you will fly any other day of the week for us, whenever we need you, you've got your job back and you've got your Sabbaths off. I said, wow, what a blessing. Thank you, Lord. So that was truly an answer to prayer. Now, many times when I was flying that plane, at night, in the weather especially, I'd be focusing, I'd be flying like this, and the instruments said I would be like this, straight and level. But I would feel like I was like this. Because, you know, you get, at times you're, you can get vertigo. Your signals with your brain can get confused. And they always taught us, always trust the instruments because the instruments are right and you are wrong. And so that was a spiritual lesson that 
or a lesson from flying that has a spiritual meaning to me. And, and, and it's right here that this is what we've got to follow. The Bible says that our, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. And, and God says in uh, Proverbs or Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And so, in fact, we had what we, we called as we flew in instruments, a cross check. And every time, uh, what I mean by that is we, we'd focus on the attitude indicator. It's a little airplane that you would focus on and you would look at that. And let's just say you want to check your altitude. So you go up and you check the altimeter, but you come back to the little airplane. You, would, you needed to maintain aircraft control and you always had to focus on that little airplane to do that. And so you would go up and check that. But then you, and say you want to check your course, you'd go up and check the course, but you come back to the little airplane. And it was like this, it was like a cross check. And we can kind of see that cross check in our spiritual life too, right? Jesus is the center and wherever we go, we go up here to work, but we come back to Christ. We come back to Jesus and we go here with our family, but we keep coming back to Jesus like this, a cross check. So that's just a, a spiritual lesson that we can have from flying from, uh, that I, I learned back in those days. I'm, I'm, I know you've, you've heard that before. So let's go to Revelation eleven nineteen for just a few minutes. And let me read the text again. It says, the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So when we see the, the ark of the covenant, we know that that was in the most holy place. And the high priest only went in there one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement or Judgment Day, which was in the fall. So now here we are over in the, the book of Revelation at the end of time, and we're looking at the real Ark of the Covenant and the real Most Holy Place and the real Day of Atonement. And we can see other parts of the Bible, Daniel tells us, gives us a picture about this day of atonement. In Daniel chapter seven, it says, we see the ancient of days. That's God the father. And we see that he says, the books were opened, the court was seated, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Now, whether that's a figurative kind of number or not, anyway, you look at it, it's 100 million. That is huge what is going on right now. And the Bible gave us a starting time for that, the year 1844, when this judgment would, would start in heaven. And we see one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. That's Jesus. And we know that he's our advocate, our intercessor there. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, I pray you don't sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so he is our advocate. He is our defender, our vindicator. But you know, it's more than that. He's also our judge. Because John chapter 5, verse 22 says, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And so it just doesn't get any better than that. I mean, to think that God is our defender. He's our defense attorney, and he's our judge all at the same time. He wants all of us to be saved. As we look through that open door, we can see hope for all of us. God has two things I heard a preacher say 
the capacity, the infinite capacity of, of love, and we can see that in, in the sanctuary there. His capacity for love is infinite, but also his capacity to preserve our free will is infinite. It is paramount with God. And so we see all that. We can look through that open door and we can see the words forgiveness coming right into our hearts and our lives. But we also see the ark. <clears throat> and we know in the, the ark up there, as we're looking at the real ark, that's the original, real, inside of it is the real Ten Commandments. But in the earthly ark, there was actually three things put in the ark. So I want to look at those three things. There was the Ten Commandments, there was Aaron's rod, and there was the manna. Now, <clears throat> it must be important if it's inside the ark, because all of the ceremonial type things, laws and ceremonial laws and everything, were put in a pocket on the outside of the ark. But we're talking about what's inside. So let's look at the manna first. And it's doubly important because it was put inside of a golden bowl on top of that. So what is the significance of the manna for them and for us? Well, one thing, the manna defined the weekly cycle. In Exodus chapter 16, we see the manna fell every day, but on Friday, twice as much fell. This was a miracle that happened every week. And on Sabbath, none. And it says in Exodus 16, 28, when some of the people went out to collect on Sabbath, that God said to them, why do you refuse to keep and obey my commandments? And so it defined the weekly cycle. But not only that, <clears throat> it also showed how the, the, the God's people learned that they could trust God. I mean, this was a miracle that he worked every week for 40 years years as they made their way through the wilderness into the earthly land of, of Canaan. And so this manna was a symbol of God taking care of them, but it was also God providing for them their nutrition. And when they started, this what they, that, it was what they needed, the nutrition they needed to make it through the wilderness. And when they started crying for the flesh pots of Egypt. God finally gave them quails and many of them died. They, what God had given them, they needed. He gave them high octane to make it through the wilderness, a full tank of it. Now, now I want to tell you a little story, a flying story about a full tank. One time flying that big airplane, we flew from North Carolina to Hawaii. And when we got ready to return, the fuel officer would only give us three quarters of a tank. So, you know, I'm, we're talking about a full tank here. He would only give us three quarters of a tank to return to the mainland. And we didn't think too much of that, but he wasn't budging. But it just so happened we had our commander with us, and he was a general. So we told him about this, and he went to the fuel officer who was a major. And he said, Major, I understand you're only going to give us three quarters fuel to fly back to the mainland. And the major said, yes, sir, that's correct. That's a new directive. That's the best we can do, sir. And the general said, well, major, that does present a problem. Because you see, I like to fly with my tanks full. And the major only had two words to say, yes, sir. 
and we flew out of Hawaii with full tanks. God is our general, and he wants us to fly with a full tank, a full tank of his spirit, a full measure, and it's for the asking. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. But he also wants us to have a full measure of nutrition as we make our way into the heavenly Canaan, as in our wilderness experience. And we, in this very sad situation of the standard American diet, we're not getting it. It's low nutrients, low fiber, high calorie, just like what they had back in Israel. And it was killing them, and it's killing us today with all these lifestyle diseases. God wants us on manna. So where do you get it? Well, I guess we have to go back to what Adam and Eve did. And they had the fruits and the grains and the nuts and the vegetables, the high fiber and the high nutrition and low calorie as we make our way into the heavenly Canaan. God wants us on a high octane fuel, manna. Okay, so the next thing was Aaron's rod that buds. So in Numbers chapter 17, it tells how God told every tribe to bring a rod to the sanctuary. And the next morning, Aaron's rod was the one that budded. In fact, it produced almonds, which are a symbol of God's watch care. So what's the significance of Aaron's rod? Well, you remember that, first of all, Aaron was a member of the tribe of the Levitical tribe. And the spiritual leadership was, first of all, given to the firstborn. But when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and he came down off the mountain, the whole tribe of Israel were, were worshiping the golden calf. You remember that story. Except for the tribe of the Levites. And so God, because of their loyalty, God transferred the spiritual leadership and authority of guardian the word of God, of the guardians of the oracles of God, to the Levites and to Aaron as the high priest. He was, he was the high priest at that time. And that's a symbol of Christ's high priesthood ministry in the heavenly sanctuary that we're looking at right now. So it was a transfer of authority. Now, when I was in the Air Force, I, I learned something about authority. I, I remember this meeting I was in one time. It was a big, huge convocation, a big meeting of like 500 airmen. One morning, six o'clock in the morning, we we're just sitting there waiting for a briefing. 500 of us just chatting, telling jokes. And all of a sudden, up in the front of the building, there was a brief sound you could hear. Ladies and gentlemen, a ten hut. And like a flock of birds taking off, 500 people snapped to attention. And you could just see three stars making, their, making his way to the microphone, the general. Ladies and gentlemen, please be seated. 500 people sit at attention. There was no talking, no chewing gum, sorry, no cell phones. Well, we didn't have any cell phones back then anyway. But if we did, we wouldn't have been looking at them. We were focused. There was authority. And that's what Aaron's rod represents, authority. And I believe that God has given us Aaron's rod as we are to preach the last warning message to a, dying, to a dying world. The three angels' messages. The first message is a message about true worship, 
Fear God. Give glory to him. This is out of Revelation 14. For the hour of his judgment is come. That's the judgment we're talking about in this real day of atonement. And worship. It's all about true worship. Worship him who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And it even points back to why we owe worship to God. Because he is our creator. And it's right in the, the part of the, the, the Sabbath command, the seal of God, the very seal of God of why we owe worship to him because he is our, our creator. And so we see in, in, in this um, rod, in this uh, Aaron's rod, we see this uh, worship. That, that's the first, angel's, the first angel's message. But the second angel, we have the authority through Aaron's rod to preach the second angel, which was about Babylon is fallen. All of the deceptions, all of the false teachings, Jesus warned us over and over and over again about the false Christ, the false prophets, the false teachings. Babylon is fallen. So first angel, true worship. Second angel, false worship. And finally, the third angel, the last message of warning before the wrath of God to a dying world. And it says, it says in there, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So we have been given Aaron's rod of authority to preach that. And it doesn't mean we're any better. I mean, look at Aaron. He wasn't any better. He was the one that let them worship the golden calf. But he finally got it right with God. He repented and God had him as the high priest. And so, yes, Aaron's rod of authority. We have that. Then the last thing was the Ten Commandments. And when we look up into Revelation eleven nineteen, we're looking at the real Ten Commandments. And that's the one that God took and made a copy of and gave it to Moses and he put in the, in the earthly ark. And in that real Ten Commandments, we see that, that nothing has changed. I mean, um, God says, all my commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. They are done in truth and uprightness. I will not alter the thing that has come out of my mouth. So we know that, that it has not changed. Now, we happen to know a lot about the Ten Commandments. I mean, first of all, we know we're not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. We're saved by God's grace through faith. The hope that we see through that open door is coming from Christ. In fact, I want to I read you a little something right here. This is about in, in uh, Steps to Christ. It's uh, it says right here about the light coming from the sanctuary. It says, let us raise our eyes to the open door of the sanctuary above where the light of the glory of God shines in the face of Christ who is able to save them to the uttermost that comes unto God by him. That's in Hebrews seven twenty-five. So God wants us to look up there. And when our forefathers looked up there, they could see that they were on course on glide slope. There was like a ship being guided by the, on the ocean by the stars at night. They knew they were not following a, a cunningly devised deception. And the deceptions were everywhere. One, one of the, Paul preached about this in, in the book of uh, in Acts chapter 20, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders about the deceptions, he said, grievous wolves would come into the church in the last days and they would begin to preach perverse things. And one of the things that Satan began to preach is that, hey, you can't keep God's law, and when you break it, there's no mercy. 
And you know, Jesus proved him wrong on both of those points. He perfectly kept God's law. He says, I delight to do thy, thy law, O God, thy, or thy law is within my heart. And he also extends mercy to all of us. We can see mercy coming through that open door, forgiveness to each one of us. So when, when that argument didn't work, Satan changed his argument. He said, hey, not only do you not have to, you not only can you not keep it, you don't have to. Done away with. We know better than that. If the law of God had been done away with, then Jesus would not have needed to have died. If you do away with the law, you do away with breaking it. If you do away with breaking it, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to die. He would have died in vain, but he did not die in vain. And so, Our forefathers, when they looked up there, they could see that nothing had changed. They were on course. So I'm going to tell you this last flying story. And I want you to just picture for a moment the flashing lights on that text, flashing lights on the open door, like like runway lights, sequencing flashing lights. So here's the story. My boss sent me to New York and LaGuardia to pick up a a load of radioactive material and fly it to St. Louis. So I took off at night and it was right into the weather. I was doing that cross-check thing I told you, maintaining aircraft control, you know, looking at the instruments and following it, making my way to St. Louis. Well, it didn't take too long into the flight to figure out that the headwinds were a lot worse than forecast and I was not going to have enough fuel to make it to St. Louis. But the, the real problem was that the weather was going down everywhere. The whole East Coast was going down and airports were closing. My alternate was now closed. And so I was in need of getting on the ground. So I called the controller and he, and he said, well, Pittsburgh is open. It's right at minimums. That means the, the weather was right down to 200 feet above the ground. So the idea is you, you fly down the 200 feet. If you see the runway, you can land. If not, you got to go back up. Before he could get me vectored onto that approach, he called me and said, Pittsburgh just closed. It went zero, zero. That means zero visibility. It's like driving in the fog at night and you can't see anything. So, wow, now things are really starting to get too exciting. Low on fuel, all the airports are closing. So I called him. I said, well, do you have anything else? He said, well, there is one little airport, 30 miles east of Pittsburgh. It's open. It's at minimums right now. You can have that. Great. I'll take that. He vectored me on it. I'm now flying the on course, on glide slope. He clears me to land if I find the field. I got right down to the minimums of 200 feet. I looked out. I could see nothing but black, dark clouds. And this all happened in like a tenth of a second. And I'm thinking, where else am I going to go? So I broke the minimum, something you're not supposed to do. And I went down to 150 feet. And I looked out, nothing but black, dark clouds. And I had my hands right here on the throttles, about to push them forward, not knowing where I was going to go, but not willing to crash the airplane and die that very second. And I looked out one more time, and all of a sudden, between, beneath those clouds, I began to faintly pick up these sequencing lights flashing. And they got brighter and brighter and brighter. 
and I followed them down and there was the runway. And I broke out at the last second and landed. I could hardly taxi back in. The weather was going down so fast. And when I did get the airplane parked and shut down, I could not see to walk from the airplane to the tower. I had to grope my way to the tower. And I called St. Louis and I told him, hey, you're not going to get your, own, your radioactive material tonight. And they were so upset. And I was just praising God. Thank you, Lord. You guided me down. I saw that you guided me to the lights. And I found a runway. You guided me to a runway. That's what I believe God has put on this text and on that open door, flashing, sequencing lights. And he's saying to us, you are on course. You are on glide slope. You're not following a cunningly devised deception. The two great deceptions of the last days, Sunday sacredness and immortality of the soul, all of that's about to happen and come before us. God says, no, you are on course. It's as if the divine controller, Jesus, is speaking to us on course, on glide slope, cleared to land, runway seven. But sir, everybody's asking for runway one. Yes, but I cleared you for runway seven. The divine sequencing lights on runway one are inoperative. You will not be able to see to land. Stay with me. I have given you the, the fuel you need. You have the manna and you have clearance to land. I've, you've, I've given you Aaron's rod. And as you come down through the clouds darkly now, you will begin to pick up the divine sequencing lights and you'll find the runway. You'll be able to see to land. I'm guiding you home. You are almost home. Amen.